Hello, it's Thursday the 28th of January. I'm John Dennis. Today, why Tony Blair's Attorney General changed his mind and gave the green light for the invasion of Iraq. I reached the view that, on balance, the better view was that it was lawful. Also today, Steve Jobs unveils the Apple iPad. Clearly it's going to change uh, how people consume news, but I think it's opened up people to, to accepting how they, how they consume this media more. People like holding things, like newspapers and magazines. Cadbury workers protest at the Bourneville plant against the takeover bid from Kraft. So I still have family that work at Cadbury's and I feel very strongly that it's been given away to an American company when it's been in Britain for such a long time and it should not go abroad. Teenagers from poorer families are more likely to go to university than they were 15 years ago, according to a major new study. And we'll hear from a campaigner who's been living up a tree for the last six months to protest against open-cast mining. There's so many issues that we need to fight. We're going to stay in contact with the, the people that we've met in this local area and, and try and stop this mining any way we can. Guardian Daily with John Dennis on guardian.co.uk First, our top story, the Chilcot inquiry into the Iraq war, has heard from one of its key witnesses. The former Attorney General, Lord Goldsmith, has explained how he changed his mind on the legality of the Iraq war. In March 2003, just weeks after telling the government that a second UN resolution was needed before any military action against Saddam Hussein, he told Tony Blair it was unnecessary. I therefore now recognised, as I actually suspected at the outset, but I now recognise that it wasn't good enough to say there's a reasonable case and I must now consider whether or not, on balance, my view was that it was right or wrong. And so it was a question then of taking that step, of considering those issues, and I reached the view, I'm happy to explain why, I reached the view that, on balance, the better view was that it was lawful. Uh, and that's why I came out with that view. Well, one of the main lines of inquiry for the Chilcot panel was to find out why Lord Goldsmith changed his mind and came to believe Britain could go to war without a second UN resolution. Andrew Sparrow has been live blogging the Chilcot hearings for The Guardian. He's in our Westminster office. I think the picture changed quite considerably yesterday. I'm up till yesterday morning uh, with got the impression that Goldsmith had pretty much been sitting on the fence right until the last minute when in mysterious circumstances he suddenly decided that a law that would be distinctly iffy on a, from a legal point of view would be absolutely fine. What he said yesterday was that uh, um, by mid-February 2003 he had actually come to the conclusion that uh, uh, the war would be legal and he explained that the document that um, he wrote in March and sent to the Prime Minister which uh, was stuffed full of caveats. Um, he said that when he was writing that perhaps he'd been overly cautious but he insisted his fundamental views sort of hadn't changed from mid-February. He did concede that in November, December 2002 after the UN adopted Resolution 1441. He hadn't been convinced at that stage that war would be legal without a second resolution. But he said uh, conversations with the British ambassador to the UN, Sir Jeremy Greenstock, Jack Straw, and a visit to the the um, uh, to Washington to speak to Americans had, had changed his mind. So he's he was saying uh, I, I wasn't wobbling at the last minute. Uh, I'd made my mind up by mid-February. Did he cave into political pressure? He was adamant that he didn't, and I 
felt that he actually made quite a impressive witness. He said that uh, it was put to him that uh, by mid-March, with the, the, you know, the government facing a prospect of a huge rebellion in Parliament and, and the Cabinet Secretary drawing up plans for Tony Blair's resignation, that there was monumental political pressure on him to, to come up with a good, so to speak. But he said that political considerations weren't an issue for him. He looked at the matter and decided it on points of law rather than politics. And frankly, no one was able to throw anything uh, at him that sort of convincingly suggested otherwise. He defended his view that the war um, was was legal, but he, he did go out of his way to say that he didn't, that didn't mean that he necessarily supported the decision to go to war. Yeah, this was, to my mind, one of the most interesting parts of the hearing and it came right at the very end in the final minute when he was given a chance to sum up and he said quite pointedly uh, uh, I thought it was legal I thought it was legal then I still think it's legal but I'm not good but whether or not it was the right thing right or wrong thing to do is for others to judge which is curious I mean he was a member of the government he was admittedly he was a law officer but attorney generals are government ministers and normally you expect the attorney general to defend government policy but uh, I, Goldsmith very pointedly, I thought, chose not to, to do that. And you can, we'll have to read into that what you want. Andrew Sparrow. And tomorrow, after Tony Blair has given his evidence, you'll be able to find out what Guardian experts think in a special edition of our Politics Weekly podcast. On The Guardian's website today... I'm Sarah Phillips from G2, The Guardian's daily feature section. In today's issue, Andy Beckett reports from the public gallery at the Chilcot Inquiry, ahead of Tony Blair's appearance. Fashion editor Jess Carton Morley writes from Paris on the art of haute couture week. And Alexis Petridis attends the opening of ABBA World, a 25-room exhibition dedicated to the Swedish band. All this and more at guardian.co.uk forward slash g2. After feverish speculation, Apple has launched its new tablet computer, the iPad. Details were kept top secret until yesterday's launch in San Francisco, where Steve Jobs unveiled the new gizmo. Using this thing is remarkable. It's, it's so much more intimate than a laptop, and it's so much more capable than a smartphone with this gorgeous large display. Let's go right to the, to the web. So here we are at apple.com. And I'm just going to go to Safari. I just touch the bookmarks icon and touch the New York Times, let's say. Shows me a map of all the places I've taken photographs. So I can just hold down one of the pins, push on one of the pins, and see all the photos I took there, see all the photos I took in New York. Let's go to Paris. Here's all the photos I took in Paris. Just tap on it to open them. And in addition to just looking at them as we have, uh, we have built-in slideshows. And so... Um, I can bring up a slideshow here and select my music and pick one of the different transitions. I'm going to pick one called origami. You get the idea. Isn't that cool? Technology expert Dan Catt is here. Dan, what is the iPad and what does it do? Well, the iPad is essentially um, a big iPhone, pretty much like everyone said it was going to be. And it runs all the iPhone applications you're used to. And primarily, you can use it to browse the web. You can't make telephone calls with it and you can't do videos for it, but it allows you to sort your media, your listen to your music, and so on and so forth. It, things that people are generally used to, just 
a little bit lighter. Well, there was a lot of excitement about the iPad. We didn't know what it was going to be called, the iPad, until yeah. yesterday. Um, it was shrouded in secrecy, um, announced with great fanfare. Was it worth the wait? I, th- I think it was. I believe it was. Lots of people were speculating about it beforehand and sort of being slightly down on it and being a sight as well. But I think it's really come through, particularly with the pi- price point you know, primarily being you know, a lot, half the price of what a lot of people are expecting. Starts at $499. $499, which is in English pounds, £499, uh, <laughs> roughly. But yes, I, I think that's one of the breakthrough things. So they're really trying to push getting it out to people. Um, a, a lot more than the iPhone. I think a lot of people are burnt with the iPhone, the, the high starting price. And then they rapidly dropped it down. A lot of early adopters were sort of put out by that. Um, myself, I was thinking about holding back on it. I still am thinking about that. But I think they learned from that and to start at a lower price point is good. Will it do for books and newspapers what the iPod did for music, digital music? Yes, it's an interesting question. And I think this is one that if we look beyond the iPad itself to more the, the greater effect that the iPhone and the iPod had on the music industry, obviously there were iPods before you know their music players mp3 players before and there was kind of okay i had a few there they're a bit clunky and then the ipod came along and it was just so natural to use that, that people got it and the ability to sync it made the transition to sort of how people found music it suddenly became a lot easier just to to buy music and, and so on and so forth so that was a big change there and then with the iphone i mean i don't think i knew anyone who really loved their phone before you know people hate phones People still hate phones, you know, generally. And then the iPhone came along, and it was suddenly a game changer between how people thought of a phone. So I, I travel a lot on trains, so I see people just sitting there casually playing games um, and just enjoying using the device. Not so much to watch TV and movies, I haven't seen that. So I think people's understanding of what a phone is and what a small pocket computer is has suddenly opened up and people are more accepting of it. So with the with the iPad, clearly it's going to change uh, how people consume news but i think it's opened up people to to accepting how they how they consume this media more people like holding things like newspapers and magazines and that's why um and that's why these objects are fascinating to people you can quickly pick one up flick through it and, and hold it down there's there's a lot to that tangibleness that you just don't get on a computer screen or a laptop screen for reading pdfs but this thing i think the kindle started it i think this is really broken through with people's like i'm just going to sit there and leisurely read some very glossy you know newsprint that has some video in it it's it's good so you think it will be a game changer like the ipod or the iphone i I think it will i I think again the the iphone my experience of it it took quite a while to to proliferate out amongst people now like i said on a train you'll generally see one or two people or or on a bus look quite a few people have it so i don't think people have it at the start but but their understanding of what can now be done, their expectations of what you ought to be able to do with a handheld device of just... Um, but people consume media in a different way. So in the morning, people are looking for what has happened overnight, what is the current news. So you'd want to pick it up and just have the headlines there. But then in the evening, you're sort of kind of, kind of slumped down on the sofa and you just want to browse around. And that's the, the bit that's kind of been missing. So people have found ways to get their headlines, like picking up newspapers. But it's that kind of just cruising around websites and catching up and going onto Facebook and all of that type of stuff. I, I think that's where people will expect devices to, to serve their purposes more. Dan Catt. Scottish Coal plans an open-cast mine at Mainshill in South Lanarkshire. 
It was sold the rights by the landowner Lord Home, who's also the chairman of Coote's Bank. It would be the fourth open cast site in the area, and there are strong objections from the local council and residents. Campaigners have been occupying the site for several months, and I spoke to one of them, named Beth, as bailiffs were removing her from a tree. I'm up a sycamore tree on a, a platform at Mainsville Woods at the Mainsville Solidarity Camp, and our eviction started on Monday, and they've been moving people around us. Um, they've just come up, there's quite a group of us up in a bunch of sycamore trees, and there's about, well, I don't know, 50, 60 bailiffs, cops, um, vehicles at the climbers at the top, at the bottom of the trees. How long have you been in, at this camp, Beth? I've been here for, living here for six months. Um, the camp's been here for just a bit longer than that, about seven months now. And, and you say you've been there for six months. There's been some very cold weather during that time. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> How have you managed during the sort of sub-zero um, climate? Yeah, we've, the numbers have really been high over Christmas and everything. There's been 15, 20 of us. And we've, um, we've built ourselves like a communal with a burner. And, and that's been made it livable, really. Um, but uh, yeah, just out working, getting dry wood. To, to heat ourselves and uh, keeping moving and working on our defences has been keeping us going. What, what are your objections to the Scottish Coals plans? Well, there's a lot of them really. Like, this is really, really heavily area, mined area of South Lanarkshire. The local community don't want any more coal mines. We're sitting on top of a, a bunch of fossil fuels that just, like, with the situation with climate change, we just can't be um, allowing them to dig them out of the ground. Can I just ask you, hang on one moment. Sorry, it's, um, yeah, they're like at the bottom of the trees now and we can't really see. So you, you've, li- you've literally got bailiffs at the bottom of your tree trying to get you down at the moment, have you? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay, and, uh, <laughs> but I mean, you know, on the issue of the, the open cast mount mining, doesn't the landowner, the Earl of Home, have the right to use his land however he chooses? Well, <laughs> you know, what right does he have to own this land? The people who live, the people who live really close to this area, they don't want it. They're the ones that have to suffer the illness. He lives in London. He's, he's a rich, wealthy lord. Like, you know, and it's just, it's an old system that I just really don't think we should be living like that in this day and age where the, the rich and wealthy decide what, what, what happens so that they can profit from it. Working with huge corporations, it's ridiculous. And if and when you are evicted, what happens then? Um, well, hopefully the, the campaign against the Minto Opencast won't stop there. Um, also, like, yeah, we, we won't stop. Uh, we really need to get on top of this. There was another action today. Um, the Rainstray Cold Rail Terminal was, um, was shut down today by one person locking onto it as well. And that's just like seven miles down the road from here. There's so many issues that we need to fight. We're going to stay in contact with the, the people that we've met in this local area and, and try and stop this mine in any way we can. And, and you know, I don't know exactly what that will mean. Um, but the, yeah, the occupation isn't over yet and I think there's at least a few more days in it. Workers at Cadbury have been protesting at the Bourneville plant in Birmingham. Members of the Unite Union want shareholders to block the takeover offer from the American food company Kraft. They say Kraft plans to axe 10,000 jobs worldwide. Stephen Morris reports. Keep Cadbury's British! 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 Keep Cadbury's British!
Joe Clark, United Union Regional Officer. So what are you hoping to achieve today? Well, we're highlighting the plight of this situation because at the moment the Cadbury board have um, sold the, you know, the crown jewels and um, they've got no assurances of craft in relation to job security, investments and continued uh, investments in this site, which has been quite extensive over the past three years. And um, you know we've had no assurances whatsoever about job security or investment from craft either. So quite clearly we're concerned about the situation. It isn't a done deal as yet. I mean, it is looking as though the deal will go ahead, but quite clearly Clearly, you know, we've got uh, a campaign running over the next week to try and influence those shareholders um, that you know may be able to influence. Just give me your name, please. Uh, Keith Tyler. And you're a worker at Cadbury? I am a worker at Cadbury, yes. How long? 35 years. 35 years? Yeah. Man and boy. Man and boy, yeah. So what's the feeling there now? Or what do you feel now? Tell me that. After the announcement was made last week, uh, the, the disappointments from the, the, the people that work inside the factory and uh, from the trade union has been immense. I mean, it's, it's like we've been kicked in the guts, really. I mean, uh, and it's just been like regrouping and see what, what can we do in this, in this final week to try and persuade people that we would still uh, prefer to stay independent. So it's Philip Holmberg. And you used to work there? I worked at Cabbage for 33 years, starting in March 1976, and I left last year. Right, but you feel strongly enough to come back here today and, and demonstrate with the people who are still working there? I feel there. very strongly. I have a lot of friends, also. I still have family that work at Cabbage, and I feel very strongly that it's been given away to an American company when it's been in Britain for such a long time, and it should not go abroad. And it should stay British, and that's why it should stay. I like your sash made out of, what's that made out of? Foil. <laughs> Dairy milk foil wrappers. Foil wrap, yeah, yeah. Very nice, and a, and a rosette as well, rosette homemade. As well, to match. <laughs> so what, why are you here today? We're heartbroken that Cadbury's might be going. It's a lovely firm as it is, and we believe we've been sold out. We really do. We're heartbroken about it, really am. Stephen Morris reporting. Teenagers from the poorest homes in England are 50% more likely to go to university than they were 15 years ago. That's according to a major study by the Higher Education Funding Council for England. And it's the first to examine every student who started a degree course since the mid-90s. The Guardian's Jessica Shepherd has the details. It says that um, the proportion of teenagers who are going to university from the poorest homes um, in England has jumped by 50%, and um, that's in the last 15 years. Um, and that rise is um, concentrated in the last five years, so from the mid-2000s to about now. Uh, why is this? Why are poorer teenagers more likely to go to university than they were in the 1990s? Well, uh, the researchers say they don't really know uh, what the reason is, but it's probably because so much funding, so much more funding has gone into schools um, and GCSE results have improved. Um, and also the introduction of um, cash incentive for the poorest students to stay on at school. As well as that, the universities have had a big drive to increase uh, participation from poor, students from poorer backgrounds. Uh, so they've been ploughing a lot of cash into that. How do poorer teenagers' chances of attending university compare with young people from wealthier families? Well, one in about one in five teenagers from the poorest homes now go to universities, about 19.2%. Um, and that compares with more than half of students from the richest 
um, homes. I think it's 57%. So there's still a massive difference between the chances of a teenager from the poorest home um, going to university compared with one from the richest home. What about the impact of tuition fees? What's the, what a difference has that made? Well, I mean, it's again, it's hard to say, but the researchers use the findings to show that actually tuition fees haven't had um, any effect on participation. They haven't sort of deterred students in the way that people thought um, they would. What about, how does all this sit with this government commissioned report published only yesterday that showed Britain becoming more unequal over the last 30 years? Yeah, I mean, it really is a sort of bit of a contradiction, in contradiction to it. Um, I think John Hills's report said that only 4% of children receiving free school meals, which is sort of a key indicator of poverty, um, went on to higher education if they received the free school meals at 15. Um, and that's compared with 33% of those who weren't eligible. So this, this study today would imply that actually things are much better than uh, the inequality report yesterday showed. Jessica Shepherd. Guardian Daily was produced today by Phil Maynard. My name's John Dennis. Thanks for listening.